Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. Let you just take a moment to find that. John's Gospel, chapter 13. And we'll give you a scripture in a moment. If you were asked to describe the essence of a soldier, what words would come to mind? Perhaps words like courage, loyalty, obedience. If you're asked to describe the essence of an athlete, what words would come to mind? Stamina, fitness, strength. What about servant? You might think of fidelity, industry, loyalty, honor. How about an ambassador? Words like diplomacy, wisdom, certainly Having great people skills would be a big help if you're an ambassador. Now all these and more are words that the Apostle Paul used as metaphors for Christians. And all of them are true, all of them are good. However, Jesus narrowed it all down to just one word. According to Jesus... One word describes his followers, and that word is love. Just one word. John 13, verse 35. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Notice how Jesus sums up the essence of a believer in that one simple word, Love. New Living Translation puts that this way. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Title of the message this morning is How to Recognize a Christian. And Jesus said, The way to recognize a Christian, a follower of Christ, is love. That's the benchmark. Now, of all the words that Jesus could have chosen, he chose love. He could have chosen, I suppose like Paul, a practical word like servant. Or perhaps a theological word like redeemed. But instead he chose a moral and an ethical word like love. So I want to very quickly look at the context of where he introduced this to his disciples in a very specific way. In John chapter 13, it begins, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, 
that he had come from God and was going to God. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, and then we know what happened. He gave them a master class on servanthood. And so verses 1 to 17, Jesus, knowing here that literally within a few hours uh, that he would be arrested, uh, that he would be tried falsely, and eventually he would be cruelly sentenced to death. And knowing all of that, then he gives them a master class in servanthood. In verses 18 to 32, which we'll not read, uh, he pinpoints for us who the betrayer is. Judas, Iscariot. Makes that very clear for us. The disciples weren't sure, but looking at the book, looking up from hindsight, we can very clearly see that it was Judas was the betrayer. Then verse 33 to 38, uh, he tells them that very shortly he's about to go away and that they cannot follow him, at least not at this point. Later on they will, but not now. And so it's in those verses that I want to pick up the story. And so verse 33, John 13, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, you would think, wouldn't you, that Jesus telling them very clearly that he's about to give them a new commandment. You would think at that point their ears would pick up immediately and they'd be waiting with bated breath to hear what this new commandment is from the lips of Jesus. And you would think, would you not, that that would be the thing that would, uh, that would take up their thoughts, that that would be the thing that would be very attractive to them. But actually, they just let that just go right over their heads. Almost as if he even never said it. Because immediately, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> they had totally, completely missed this new commandment to love one another. All their concern was, Lord, where are you going that we can't go with you? Now this commandment, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so that you love one another. Firstly, notice that this is a commandment, it's not a suggestion. It's an order, it's not an option. In other words, this is something that God takes very seriously indeed. It's of the utmost importance to God and to His kingdom. Now, he demands it. He absolutely demands that you and I love one another. It's not optional. You can't take this or leave it. 
In fact, it's so important to God, it's so important to Jesus Christ that he said, this is the way that the world will know that you belong to me. Now, of course, we would love to think of ourselves, and it is true, according to Scripture, that we are servants, that we're soldiers, that we're athletes, spiritually speaking, uh, that quickly, and that we are ambassadors. And all those are wonderful titles to have and to live up to. But actually, the one deciding factor, we can have all of those things, we can call ourselves all of those things, we can give our all kinds of titles, both scripturally and man-made, but as far as the world out there is concerned, they don't give a rap about any of that. And if we do not love one another, none of that will amount to hell of beans. And so God takes this very seriously indeed. God wants us to love one another, not just for His sake, or not just for our sake, but for the world's sake. We have to love one another. Secondly, notice that this is a new commandment. A new commandment I give unto you. Now, not new in the sense that we were never told before uh, to love one another. Not new in that sense. I think that we all instinctively know that it's better to love than to hate, isn't it? It's better to be honest than be a cheat. It's better to be faithful than unfaithful. So we, so we know that. So there's nothing new in knowing that it's good and it's right and it's proper to love one another. That's good. However, it's more than that here. This is a new commandment in the sense that now our love can be compared. It can be measured. We now have a template for our love. So Jesus is setting a standard here. And what is the standard? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Here's the new bit. As I have loved you so that you love one another as I have loved you. And immediately this sets this love on a higher plane, on a different level. It goes beyond ordinary human love, which is wonderful, that God has already put within the capability of every human being on earth. But it goes above and beyond that into the love of God, the agape love or agape love, whatever way you want to pronounce it. The God kind of love. The love that's unconditional with the same love that God has got. That's more than just human love and feeling and emotion that can come and go. This is a love that's unconditional, that's meant to last, that's meant to outlast and outlive everything. And so he said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, as I said a moment ago, that Jesus knows that his time is very short. The betrayer has le already left that room. He's already on his way to betray Jesus. It's only a matter of moments before they come with the soldiers to arrest Christ in the garden. He already knows all of this. And so he also knows that his few moments left with his disciples, before everything changes, he's got to impart to them some truths some wisdom, some last-minute instructions. 
But above and beyond all that he's about to say to them, the one thing that he really, really wants them to hear, and it's the very thing they missed, is that they love one another as he loved them. Which is a very, very high love indeed. And so, knowing that he said that, thinking that they would take this up, thinking that that would be the one thought in their minds before he would go that would stick with them, they completely miss it. Of course, Jesus has spoken to them before about love. You remember how that in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, how that those Ten Commandments are divided into two. The first four, which are Godward, having no other gods before him, loving him with all your heart, soul, and mind. All of those first four are Godward. The last six are manward. And how that we have to deal with one another. And how that Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus takes all of those ten commandments and he wraps them into two commandments. <clears throat> Matthew 20. Verse 35, then one of them, this is the Pharisees and Sadducees, then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so previously, Jesus had taken the Ten Commandments and he condensed them into two. Love God, love your fellow man. Love God, that's vertical. Love your fellow man, that's horizontal. Love God, Godward. Love man, manward. So he condensed them into two. Now here, before he's about to leave the scene of time and go to the cross and be crucified, he highlights one for them personally. Irregardless of what they do with the world out there, which you're supposed to love anyway. But he says, among each other, as brothers and sisters in Christ, he says, I want you to love each other to the same measure and degree that I have loved you. And that is a massive, that's a big ask, isn't it? In fact, that is such a big ask that the only way we can do this is if the love of God is in our hearts. Because we can't love that much. We find it very, very hard to love unconditionally, don't we? I love you if. I love you until. And that's usually as good as it gets. But he says, I want you to love each other as I have loved you, which is unconditionally. And so this love that he's talking about requires us to go further, higher, deeper. It's not just simple, ordinary, human, five-eighths love. For us, 
for the world to notice us, we have got to go the second mile. We have got to be sacrificial in our love. It's got to be extravagant, not cheap. It's got to be in deed, not in word only. Now, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and obviously Paul caught this, and John did too, as we'll see in a moment. But Paul writing to the church in Ephesus says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. It's Ephesians 5 and 2. So Christ's love was sacrificial. Christ's love was extravagant. Christ's love went the second mile. Christ's love was unconditional. And that's the quality and the standard of love that he commands from us and demands from us. Say, so David, that's a very, very, very high standard. Yes. And it's only by God's grace and it's only by his love in us that we can possibly hope to love this way. In 1 John chapter 3, John's first epistle, chapter 3. And reading from verse 10, John, as you know, is called the Apostle of Love. And here he is. He's a very, very old man. He's the senior man in the church. Uh, by the time he's, you know, John lived to be in his 80s. Uh, by the time John died, the rest had already were gone and had been martyred. And so he's the elder statesman of the church. And many reckons he was the senior pastor of all the churches in the whole Ephesus region. And so see what his heart is. Here's the old, mature, experienced apostle who personally walked with Christ, who was there at the cross. And here he is. And what he's writing is this, verse 10 of 1 John 3. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, there's a very obvious statement, isn't it? Nor is he who does not love his brother. See the thing that John says condemns us? Nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Did you notice that the, did you, did you see that? Did you get that? We know that we have passed from death to life. It could have says, we know that we are saved. We know that we are new creation in Christ. We know that we are the redeemed of the Lord. How? Because we're filled with the Holy Spirit? Because we can talk in tongues? Because we know a whole lot of the Bible? Because we go to church every week? See what he pinpoints this down to. 
because we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brother. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's a very serious statement, isn't it? To profess that you are a believer in Christ and say, I hate that person. Jesus said you're no better than a murderer. And you're not going to get to heaven. This is what John said. That's a very serious indictment, isn't it? So you see much importance that Scripture puts upon just loving one another? By this we know we love. Sorry, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So in other words, it's very, very easy to say, I'm a Christian and I love everybody. And I love, I, I love the brethren. I, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. John says, really? Really? And, and you know they've got this great need and you can help them meet that need and you're not helping them? You're not doing something for them? Really? You've, you've got the love of God? Really? Is, is that what it's like? I don't think so. So try to catch what the Apostle's saying here. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and can and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is the, his commandment, that we should believe on the name of the son, his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And then in the next chapter, chapter 4 of 1 John, in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And who does not love does not know God. Sorry, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him, and this, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, 
that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. So over and over and over again, the Apostle John is writing about love. Of course, we must turn to the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. We cannot speak about the love of God unless we look at 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is probably one of the most used passages of scriptures at weddings. I don't think I've ever taken a wedding where I haven't at some point mentioned something from 1 Corinthians 13. And we recognize it as the love chapter. But often we fail to isolate it. Often we isolate it and we fail to see it from its context. And the context in which Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13 was this. And it's not a very nice thing. But the Corinthians, as you know, were the most charismatic of all of the churches in the New Testament. But it was also the most problematic of all the churches in the New Testament. Now, Paul had a tremendous love for the Corinthians. He loved them. But he really, really had to take them to task. He really had to chastise them. He wrote two letters to them. He had to crack the whip. And the reason for that was is because they were very, very long on gifts, but very, very short on graces. They had lots of faith, but they had very little fruit. And they would argue and they would fight uh, and they would boast and be proud. Uh, and, and they were very impatient with one another. When they would come together for what was called love feasts in those days, and pe- people would be kind of a bit like a potluck supper. People would bring all kinds of food and they would sit and, and they would share among each other and they would talk and then they would, they would their, their meetings were much more informal than ours are in the church today. And often at the end of this, then they would have a time of breaking bread and have communion. Uh, and some of them, <laughs> some of them are actually getting drunk. Hey, but can I get drunk in church? And, and some of them who had a lot, who were rich, were bringing lots of food and, and, and were not prepared to share it and, and would wait on one another. And they were, you know, they were, they, were, they were just getting very carnal in their whole attitude towards one another. And then they began to boast of who was the greatest preacher. And one says, oh, Paul's the greatest. One says, oh, no, Paulus. And one says, oh, no, Peter was, a, you know, this is the way it would go. Uh, and, and there would be all kinds of schisms and, and all kinds of stuff would be happening in the church and splits. And actually, someone were going to take each other to court. Someone have an issue with somebody, maybe to do with finances or a field or something, and, and rather than, than deal with it and work it out and even suffer loss if necessary, they would take each other to court in front of the ungodly. And Paul was livid when he heard all of this. And he wrote them this letter, really took them to task and really tried to sort them out and tell them this was a disgrace. And even worse than that, there was one particular man in the church who was a pervert. He committed incest. And rather than dealing with it, they were actually feeling they were so free and so liberated that they could, they could allow this to happen in church. 
Unbelievable. I think some stuff goes on in church today. Let me tell you, it was going on then. And this is why Paul wrote to these churches, and particularly why he wrote to the Corinthian church. As much as he loved them, and as much as they had tremendously gifted people prophetically in, in, in every kind of way possible, they were, all the gifts were flowing, but they were very, very carnal. And Paul wrote this book to sort them out, to bring them to book, to say, this is wrong. Get this right before God. And in the midst of that, he writes 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, to let them see the contrast of how they were living and how God expected them to live. So that's why it was written. It's not just a nice little bit tucked in there in the middle of scriptures, you know, that we'd like to read at weddings. It was written for a good reason. And this is why we've got to pay heed to this. So Paul basically was saying, listen, you know, you're well known as a church of having all these great charismatic gifts and you love prophecy and you love words of knowledge and words of wisdom and he goes through, you love all of those and wonderful, thank God for them all. But he said, if you haven't love, you have nothing. You have nothing. You become a laughing stock to the world. So listen, that's the context. So, Listen to what he says now. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. How many people know an empty can makes the most noise? Isn't that right? And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could even remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body even to be burnt, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. This is everything they weren't. Love does not envy Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Paul says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, edifies. Paul was more interested in them being built up than puffed up. And there's always a danger within our spiritual lives if God graces us with certain gifts, there's a danger that we can get puffed up rather than built up. And the thing that stops us becoming puffed up rather than built up is the love of God. This is what Paul's trying to teach them here. Then he goes on to say, Love does not behave itself rudely. Rudeness is not of the Spirit of God. <laughs> Some people are just, as we say, pig ignorant. Sorry for being so blunt about that. But Northern Army understand that term. Just rude. But if we're professing Christians, we can't be like that. Bible doesn't allow for it. It's not love. 
It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Are you easily provoked? <laughs> you got a short fuse? It's not love. Thinks no evil. You know what that means in the original? There's a couple of translations that puts that better. Keeps no records of wrongs. <laughs> See how hard this is? You see how you cannot do this on your own except with the love of God? Keeps no record of wrongs. How many things have we got tucked away in the back of our head? Dated, marked. He did this, she did this, they did this, they did this. Keeps no records of wrongs. One translation says, does not store up hurtful memories. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Do we rejoice in the truth? Do we rejoice in justice or injustice? Because all these things is a measure of the love of God in our hearts. What about truth? See, truth's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But the trouble is, even though it's a great virtue, if we're not careful and if we haven't got the love of God, it can become a vice in our lives. Say, what do you mean, David? Without the love of God in our lives, even our virtues can become vices. Two examples. Paul was saying about their gifts, wonderful virtues. God graced them with them. But because they hadn't got the love of God in their hearts, they became vices. They became things that they used against each other. Things that made them proud. Big badges of honor. Because I can prophesy. You remember the story of the prodigal? And how that the young son went away and took his father's inheritance, spent the, spent the lot, came back broke, stinking, he lived in the pig pen, came back, very humble, father immediately forgave him, hugged him and kissed him, held a big party for him. Wonderful story of grace, love and action. But what about the elder brother? Remember what he said? He said, you never had any party for me. Can I paraphrase? I didn't go off and spend your money. I didn't waste it. I, I stayed here. Look, I, I worked hard. I've been industrious. I've been loyal and faithful to you. I'm not like him. I didn't go off and make a fill of myself and disgrace the whole family that he did. See, those were all his virtues. He's hardworking. He was loyal. He was faithful. He was industrious. Those were all his virtues. Nothing wrong with those. But because he had no love in his heart, they became his vices. Became something he was so proud of that he looked down his nose at even his brother and had no forgiveness for his brother, no love for his brother. So you see, without the love of God, 
even the best qualities we have without the love of God can become vices, something that we can use to be proud and self-righteous about. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 4.15 that we can speak the truth in love. You know, you really can speak the truth and you really can cut the tripe out of somebody, can't you, with truth? I mean, you could go up to somebody and you could just absolutely lambast them with the truth about them. Now, sometimes we need to say things that are true. The Bible also says in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But we need to be careful why we're doing that. If you have to speak to somebody in the truth and it has to be rough, you have to really say it like it is, you better do it for the right reason. It better be because you want to help that person because you really love them and you care about them, not because you just want to slap them down or to get even. Because that's not the love of God. And this is the challenge that's right here in the love of God. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For right now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abide faith and hope and love, these three, but the greatest is love. That's what binds everything together and makes it possible. Amy Carmichael, that great woman of God, if you've never read her life story, find it and read it. Very inspiring, very challenging. Here's what she said. If I take offense easily, if I am content to continue in a cool unfriendliness, though friendship be possible, then I know nothing of Calvary love. I'll read that again. If I take offense easily, if I am content to continue in a cool unfriendliness, though friendship be possible, then I know nothing of Calvary love. We're just going to close in a second or two. 1 Corinthians 13 and the New Living Translation. Let me just read it without comment. Listen to what it says. If I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. 
Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the full understanding comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke when I thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, as in a cloudy mirror. But then we shall see everything with perfect clarity. All I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. These things will last forever. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Matthew Henry, uh, one of the great classic Bible commentators of all time. Uh, I don't know a Bible student that hasn't got Matthew Henry in his library. He said this about love. Now, he, he uses the old English word because this is written a couple of centuries ago. He uses the old English word charity for love. We think of charity as giving alms and putting money in a box, but it used to be the word, old English word for love. So where I use charity, you're thinking about love. So speaking on this chapter, he says, Some of the effects of charity are stated, that we may know whether we have this grace, and that if we have not, we may not rest until we have it. This love is a clear proof of regeneration. It is a touchstone of our professed faith in Christ. In this beautiful description of the nature and effects of love, it is meant to show the Corinthians that their conduct had, in many respects, been a contrast to it. Charity, or love, is another enemy to selfishness. It does not desire or seek its own praise or honor or profit or pleasure. Not that love destroys all regard to ourselves or that the charitable man should neglect himself and all his interests, but charity never seeks its own to the hurt of others or to neglect others. It ever prefers the welfare of others to its own private advantage. How good-natured and amiable is Christian love. How excellent would Christianity appear to the world if those who profess it were more under this divine principle and paid due regard to the command of which its blessed author laid the chief stress. Let us ask whether this divine love dwells in our heart. Has this principle guided us into becoming into becoming behavior to all men? Are we willing to lay aside selfish objects and aims? Here's a call to watchfulness and diligence and prayer. And I particularly like that part. How excellent would Christianity appear to the world if those who profess it were more under this divine principle? <laughs> Is that the biggest complaint the church has got today from the world out there? How many times have you heard there are a bunch of hypocrites? <laughs> they call themselves Christians. Even I do better than that. And that's an indictment against us. Now, if we were perfect, the world would still hate us and find something bad to say about us. But oftentimes, they're right. It's because at that moment, we haven't walked in love. And they're spotted that. And it's not Christ-like, is it? And so this is a very, very high standard that Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
And if we can walk, maybe not wholly and completely in our humanity to that level, but if we can get up there to, to somewhere near, even near that standard, then maybe the world will take notice and say those people are genuine. They really are genuine. They really walk the talk. They don't just talk about it. They actually walk it. And that would be a great compliment. That would be the thing that the world would take notice of. That's what Jesus says. By all this, by all men shall know that you're my disciples if you have long loved one towards another. Amen? Let's pray.